Welcome back to the Modernist Society. Uh, I'm Jason Mojica in New York. I'm Eric Attens in Chicago. After our last episode, which was a two-hour potluck of voices from around the world talking about the coronavirus pandemic, we thought we needed something of a palate cleanser, but wanted to do something that didn't feel totally divorced from what's going on right now. Uh, that's when we remembered the great recipe zine that Steve from Quimby's introduced us to a few episodes back called I Want to Be Your Hot Dog, More Recipes About Music and Food. Now that zine is full of musically inspired regional hot dog recipes, but our guest Frank Davis from Bushwick Grill Club has self-published a slew of these, ranging from, on the one hand, the Cha-Cha Hut barbecue cookbook, and on the other, Meat is Murder, cruelty-free recipes for the Morrissey generation. So yeah, Bill's an interesting guy. Uh, in addition to working in the music industry, uh, he's been a restaurant owner, uh, consultant to restaurant owners, and in addition to currently building his recipe zine empire, is the self-declared king of pimento cheese. Um, we should add a laugh track to this. Ha 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 ha. There you go. Um, Please don't put that in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, anyhow, with people doing a lot more home cooking these days and with some people starting to freak out over a potential meat shortage, uh, we thought it would be a good time to talk to Frank about improvisational cooking, vegetarian recipes for meat eaters, music, puns, and what lasting effect the pandemic might have on restaurants and food culture going forward. Uh, well, speaking of puns, Jason, I didn't think of this until just now, but his name is Frank, and he likes hot dogs. <laughs> there you go. Jason, our guest, talks a lot about food, and uh, I'm very curious if you, being a Chicago man at heart... And, but now you live in New York, which is the city of accessibility. Is there anything from Chicago that you miss and can't get or is kind of hard to get in New York now? Huh. Hard to get. Well, uh, the actual item that is hard to get here in New York is Jardinera uh, for some reason. You know, like there's, there are a couple of like grocery store brands of Jardinera and they're fine but it's you know not a condiment that you come across very often here so if i know i'm going to be checking luggage and can you know have a bunch of liquid i will go to bari subs bari grocery on grand avenue in chicago and and we'll stock up on jars of their jardinera in varying degrees of hotness Okay, I have two comments. One, that place is great. Again, Stackman took me there, and he was like, you got to get the vegan sub. And I was like, there's no way a vegan sub is like worth it. It's good. They make like a good vegan sub, which is totally amazing, like worth going out of your way for, like not a Subway thing. Yeah, with and eggplant, second, right? Or is that just something you add on? I have, God, it's been so long. Yeah. I, I should have gone more recently. I don't remember. I used to live close. Now I don't live close, so I haven't been a long time. Also, did you? I didn't even know that Jardinera was like a Chicago thing. Like, it's so normal here, and you live here, so you're just like, oh, that's like a, an item you can just get. Mm -hmm. um, it was only after my friend moved to Austin that he was like, did you know that that's like a Chicago like thing? I was like, <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Did you know that? Uh, not until I moved. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, yeah, what, what's going on with you at home? Are you cooking more during these times of pandemic? Or are well, you I guess venturing the, out to 
I don't know. I feel like you were always home cooking. Yeah, we do. We cook all the time. Um, I think that just comes from like a, a vegan basis in wanting to eat. So, and there's nowhere, you know, if, if I'm like, I have to like think uh, to, to come up with restaurants in Chicago that I'm excited about. And also I'm a value-based man. So like, if it's like, if it's going to cost me $100 to go have dinner, that's just off my list of places that I'm interested in. So, um <laughs> Sultan's Market, you get a $5 falafel. It's one of the best falafels you can get. It includes tax. You give the man a $5 bill in cash and then walk away. So that's uh, that's killer. But um, And we, we used to go to Poly G's. They got one in New York, too. Have you been there? Oh, yeah. It started here. I mean, it's right a block away from my house, the original Poly G's. And I was going to say that Poly G's Slice Shop, which just opened here, has been... Uh, that's actually the only non-home-cooked meal we've eaten in these uh, two months of pandemic. It was like the only ones I trusted to uh, not give me the corona. So I, I, I believe that the one in Chicago is the only one that makes a Detroit-style pizza. Actually, so Dan Stackman, our Upton's friend, took me there and he made me get the vegan one. And I was like mildly annoyed. And then I was like, this is great. And then mm. I went back with my wife and we got the cheese one. Let me tell you. A lot better than the vegan one, <laughs> and uh, so we tried to order it, and uh, but they literally that day, like we ordered it like noon, and by five they were just like, "We're done. <laughs> you don't get what you ordered. We give yeah. up." That's a bummer. Well, um, when you come when you come to New York, I will uh, take you to the the Poly G Slice Shop, which is like we want to go. Yeah. And I eat there. That's actually the biggest thing that I've missed during this time. Is I I honestly eat there three to four times a week. So uh, it's it's been a uh, so getting it for the first time after like nearly two months was just like heaven. If I could eat pizza three meals a day and not die, I would. <laughs> Uh, well, and that's also one of the things I use the jardinera for, and uh, and uh, you know, yeah, make, it's just good. homemade pizza with bari jardinera on it. Potbelly subs, you know, they they have a good jardinera. So in a pinch, I go to a, a potbelly's you know location, pick up a jar. But uh, but yeah, it's pretty good. So you would say it's a jar of jardinera. <laughs> yes. You're welcome. <laughs> Edit. Uh, okay, so on that note, um, we should go talk to Frank. Before we get started, though, I want to encourage you to take a moment to hit that. Subs- ah. I want to encourage you to take a moment to hit that subscribe button. Uh, leave us a rating, maybe even a review. Do please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is the underscore modernist. Let's go talk to Frank. I already said at the beginning. Allow myself to introduce myself. Uh, the Department of Redundancy Department. Ooh, eight bark. Yeah, eight bark. Come on, no one else listening to our dumb podcast is going to know what that means. <laughs> I, I think that will be uh, our first review. People would be like, "Wow, I can't believe they dropped an eight bark reference." <laughs> Bushwick Grill Club. What is it? How did it come into existence? <laughs> well, hopefully one day it'll actually be a real grill club. Uh, but initial, basically what it is right now is a food blog and a way for me to publish um, 
recipe books, recipe zines. Uh, basically, I've been in food for about uh, a decade, a little over a decade. Uh, and my first restaurant uh, was a place called the Chacha Hut Barbecue in upstate New York. And prior to doing that, we did backyard parties that we called the Chacha Hut Grow Club. Uh, started with just a few friends who were weekenders who would come up. And by the end of the summer, we had about 200 people in our backyard. Uh, we were stupid enough not to ever charge anything or put out tip things. Oh, wow. but we learned a lot about cooking for large, for, you know, cooking for large groups of people. And in the end of that, somebody offered us some investment money to open up a brick and mortar uh, in, uh, in Roxbury, New York, in upstate New York. Um, flash forward a few years later, we moved back to Brooklyn uh, to take part in the whole barbecue re renaissance going on in Brooklyn. And um, I kind of tucked away this idea that I would do, we've got a backyard space for our apartment building, uh, that I would someday do a grill club again. And it just seemed logical as I live in Bushwick that I would just take the, uh, the original and place it down here and call it the Bushwick Grill Club. Uh, the remarkable thing is, is on a, about, monthly, about a monthly basis, I think I get about three inquiries um, from uh, Grubhub and Seamless uh, <laughs> wanting to add me to their delivery uh, app or uh, people inquiring as to when I'm open and if they can make reservations. Um, but it's not, a, it's not an actual physical uh, uh, restaurant as of this point, though I'm hoping post COVID and all that, uh, I kind of turn it into a party. Um, and, uh, but no, basically, uh, what it turned into was a way for me to start this music and food project, uh, to start, uh, writing recipes and to sort of kind of pivot out of the day to day brutality of the hospitality industry into something a little more creative. Right. And uh, the unique thing about your recipes and recipe books is that they uh, fuse your love of music and food together uh, in a very punny mm -hmm. way. Uh, can you can you explain how this came to be? I, I mean, I first off, I believe the pun is the highest form of humor <laughs> uh, on the planet. Uh, there is no better uh, the, the wife and I have spent, we've been married quite a long time and we've gotten to the point now where I think there's at least a pun a day in the house, if not more. Um, but I spent 20 years in the music business, um, as a buyer, uh, I worked, uh, as internet director at Asterworks Records. Uh, so I've always had a big, you know, I've been a music fan for a long time. Um, and it just seemed logical when we opened up the barbecue joint, we started playing around with puns. And I am i know a lot of people go, well, you know, you're ripping off Bob's Burgers. And it's like, <laughs> no, I was doing this before Bob's Burgers <laughs> aired. Uh, I, you know, I was happy to see a kindred spirit in them, but uh, uh, we were always doing, uh, all of our um, sauces at the barbecue joint had uh, some sort of a music pun, which is where we started. Uh, the best one being, uh, uh, for me at least, there was, a barbecue sauce I hated making more than anything else, but it was our most popular. And it was basically your straight up KC masterpiece, like crappy sugared ketchup mm -hmm. in a bottle. Uh, but everybody loved it. You know, I was making like Asian hoisin barbecue sauces and I was making uh, citrus tea infused barbecue sauces. But it was this one sugary barbecue sauce, which I then in inevitably ended up calling pour some sugar on meat. <laughs> and that became the... Uh, that was, I think, the, I think that was my start, and from mm. there we kind of, um, it kind of spread out. We uh, our Asian style barbecue sauce was actually a cultural ref or a, a film reference was their gogo yubari sauce, uh, 
Um, and when I kind of got into working in bars here in, in Brooklyn, uh, when I came back to Brooklyn, I carried it over. I'd worked at a, a barbecue joint called uh, the Beast of Bourbon, uh, which in and of itself is a lovely uh, <laughs> uh, pun. And there we did the same type. I, I started doing the same type of thing. We Our sampler platters were called mixtapes. Um, we had uh, the small the small mixtape or the small platter was the minor threat. <laughs> the uh, big mixtape was the major Tom. Mm -hmm. um, our vegetarian sandwich, because uh, we hated vegetarians in a barbecue joint, as you can imagine. Uh, no offense to you, uh, uh, Eric, uh, but it's you know. So we we called our vegetarian sandwich, which was pimento cheese, uh, pickled cabbage, and um, uh, jalapenos, we call it the one, two X, you. <laughs> and, uh, ultimately, yeah, I just, I realized I'd had a big book of these, uh, puns and I had recipes for them. And that just sort of became when, when I got done doing the Chacha Hut barbecue cookbook, uh, and was looking for a new project, I said, let's just do music and let's do more recipes about music and food, uh, in and of itself, a kind of take on the Talking Heads album. And um, that just has snowballed now uh, to the extent that I find I can't do a recipe unless I can find a song to fit it, uh, which is becoming kind of the challenge these days. <laughs> Not to mention all of my musical references are about 30 to 40 years old. So <laughs> that also becomes I, a problem. I can relate to that. Yeah, but it's, you know, the problem is when you're trying to sell a, a, a zine to a millennial who doesn't get uh, references Do doesn't get the Detroit Rock City was a Kiss song doesn't get that they have you Google know, don't you for um, <laughs> you know yeah uh, that don't you know don't get that that don't you forget about me is is a Simple Mind song <laughs> from the Breakfast Club so you know uh, yeah that becomes a problem in the end but yeah that's that's how it snowballed was just basically and now I seem to be stuck there <laughs> <laughs> with. Uh with vegetarians in a barbecue restaurant, the feeling is mutual. It's always sad to go somewhere and have them be like, yeah, we have a veggie option, grilled cheese, French fries. And you're like, oh, come on. Mm -hmm. Like, thank you for nothing, not nothing. But so um, for someone who made a, a zine, the I want to be your hot dog, which off the top of my head seemed like very heavy, maybe 90% like meat based. I was very surprised that you are actually 90% roughly vegetarian most <laughs> of the time. Can you tell me, tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, I, I, again, I will say this. I think every single recipe in I Want to Be Your Hot Dog could be done with a tofu dog or a Satan dog or a uh, or any any meat alternative dog. Um, I just didn't happen to at the time uh, because that was just what was easier you know, to, to get and the more traditional aspect. Um, you know, I Want to Be Your Hot Dog is more about the toppings and the and, and you know, the regional dog thing than it is necessarily about the dog itself. Um, and honestly, at that time, I didn't, I couldn't find a, a, a plant-based dog that I liked. Um, even though at that time I was doing a lot of plant-based cooking when I was writing that. Um, and I do a lot more these days. Um, so the funny, the, 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 the irony being is that that has turned out, actually, I thought the killer would be the meat is murder, uh, cruelty-free recipes for the Morrissey generation. Um, my failure is, is that again, these kids don't know who the frick Morrissey is. Uh, <laughs> that was my huge mistake. And also I should have just put Morrissey on the cover with like a giant thing of tofu on his head, probably. Um, I'm learning lessons 
uh, from that. Also, I think Morrissey has been canceled. But, <laughs> yeah, well, he has. Oh, yes, he's definitely. I, I, I regret. I, if I ever decide to go back and redo that uh, that zine, I will definitely have my, my second edition will be completely in a different direction. Um, but so the I mean, so the, the irony is, is that as I started to look at what was most popular, um, it was this hot dog zine. And I was thinking, well, I want to I'm going to want to do a pop up at some point. I'm going to want to get out there, maybe sell some zines, make a few dogs, et cetera. And the funny thing was, is that that sent me on actually making Satan on actually on Satan. Um, that got me trying to find a vegan dog because most of the recipes in that book are vegan. Um, the toppings are all pickled stuff. And so, I mean, you got a handful of things um, that use meat chilies or whatever, but for the most part, or a mayo-based slaw, but again, if you used vegan mayo. Um, so yeah, the irony is, is that a dog that, or, or a zine that looks meat heavy has now actually morphed into a project that's more about making vegan dogs uh, and making and, and, and getting deeper into vegan food. I'll, I'll acknowledge the fact that back in my barbecue days, I was a meat dealer. I was a meat guru. I made all of the jokes, you know, here's our vegan, here, here's our vegetarian menu, that, that uh, thing of wheatgrass over there. Um, I, that being said, I did try to think about doing some smoked tempeh or, you know, I, I, I always try to avoid the portobello mushroom mm -hmm. the default the default mode that said you smoke a portobello mushroom you throw it on a bun there you go there's your vegan option there's your vegetarian option i always hated that even in bar food i hated this idea that was the default uh mode and honestly at that time up until about two years ago i was convinced vegan food sucked um i'm not gonna lie uh you know i hadn't really had a huge experience with it the few times that i did i wasn't really blown away by it um, I have several friends who are vegans who often were, you know, sickened by watching the amount of meat that I was cranking out, but that was my living. Um, you know, I used to make the, the, the thing, well, why are you expecting to come to my barbecue restaurant and get vegan when I can't go to your vegan restaurant and get a steak? Um, that's all stupid. Um, and I know that now. Um, I also know it's a hell of a lot. You know, I, I learned over time in restaurants, it's a hell of a lot cheaper to cook vegetarian and vegan. Um, and that became another aspect that informed my moving towards plant-based was when I left the business, I was cooking at home. I had a reduced income. That meant I had to cook cheaper. Um, and that cooking cheaper inevitably lands, you know, on the, on the vegetarian side of the scale because meat is expensive. Um, and yeah, the weird part about it was is that uh, when I went through looking for the dog that I was going to use for the pop-up, I didn't like anything commercially available on the market, or if I did like it, it was too expensive to be a part of the pop-up. Uh, I would end up having to charge eight bucks for a hot dog in a bar, and nobody's going to do mm -hmm. that. Um, so even in New York City. <laughs> I was about uh, to say, but... So yeah, that that led me down the, the the rabbit hole into learning how to make my own Satan dogs, and uh, um, and that's honestly what's the the next item going up on Bushwick Grill Club on Monday, because uh, I try to always do a meatless Monday type post, um, is what I'm calling Panic in Detroit. Um, it's an all vegan version of a Detroit Coney mm -hmm. dog. So it's my all vegan version of the Detroit Rock City dog, including the Detroit Coney sauce being made with ground uh, Satan. Um, strangely tastes exactly like a Detroit Coney dog. It also 
as per the pun, would cause a panic in Detroit because as a Detroit boy, you don't mess with, <laughs> you, you, mess, you mess with Detroit Coney sauce like you mess with a Chicago dog if you're from Chicago. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I, I transitioned out of that partially for budget and partially because I'd gotten to a point where meat wasn't exciting anymore. Uh, it was more exciting to see what could be done uh, you know, from a vegetarian and vegan standpoint. And at this point, I think the only thing that can't be done is cheese. Mm. I'm um, with you on that. I have a, <clears throat> a friend who is extremely long-term dedicated vegan. And I mentioned that if I make a pizza, I'm just going to use cheese because get out of here. And he's like, no, no, they have, it's really good now. It's totally different than in the nineties. And I mm -hmm. bought the brand he recommended. And I was like, you are out of your mind. <laughs> it's not at all. Yeah. No, I mean, we went to, um, again, in, in looking for something for these pop-ups, um, there's a, a cheese vendor, a vegan cheese monger in uh, Essex Street Market here in, in New York um, that is supposed to be like the pinnacle of cheese mongers in the city. And it was interesting, but it wasn't cheese, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's like, and again, I've tried making some of it here, the cashew-based stuff and so on um, here. And I find that like the cashew cremas work out nicely. I think that's a nice substitute for a sour cream. Uh, when I did uh, an amateur cooking competition for chowders, I made a vegan corn chowder, uh, corn this way, um, <laughs> that, that used a cashew crema and it was brilliant. Um, and uh, actually discovered that uh, by using cashew cream in a chowder, rather than actual heavy cream that you actually don't have the problems of it separating it was a revelation mm -hmm. to me so it's been interesting to, to see and i've talked talk to friends and encourage friends you know get out there try some of the vegan stuff and um you know and look at what you can you know expand your beyond your standard kind of burger etc uh, but you wrote that um, vegan cuisine has improved vastly in the past five years. And I was curious what that means, like the technology producing it to the recipes, the culture, what? I think it's, I think it's partially the, the people taking time. I mean, I think before it was sort of like vegan cooking was done for vegans. And I think now vegan cooking is, I mean, I, I used to use, I occasionally often use a hashtag, or I actually often use the hashtag called vegan for omnivores. And the idea is, is that if you're not making vegan food for everybody and for people who, I consider myself basically an omnivore. Um, you know, I, as Eric says, I'm 90% plant-based in my cooking at home, but, you know, I'll crush a burger, you know, any day of the week. Um, but if you're not making food, I think in the last few years, we've gotten to the point now where vegan chefs and vegan cooks, especially in restaurants and so on, realize they can't just rely on the vegan population to make their livings in New York City. You have to have food that even somebody who isn't vegan is going to enjoy. And my only continued militant stance on this is stop calling it meat. Stop calling it chicken. Stop calling it vegan beef. Stop calling it et cetera. You know, if you're making fried oyster mushrooms in place of chicken, call them fried oyster mushrooms. If you're, you know, um, let people know it's plants. You know, let them, let them get into the idea that these are plants that they could possibly go and actually make these things at home. 
just by buying a few things at the grocery store. Um, you know, don't make it. I mean, this is when I started, you know, I just the latest zine I published was um, uh, based on, you know, making Satan in time of pandemic in the time of pandemic. And it's three it's three ingredients and three ingredients you can find in almost every grocery store in America now. But again, it's like for me, I don't have to buy meat right now. I luckily stocked up, you know, a couple months ago and I've got I just made three loaves of Satan uh, yesterday. One of them went into some potato skins last night for dinner, um, using one to make a vindaloo later on this week. And it's like I'm making my own stuff partially. And Eric, you are partially responsible for it because I bought a bunch of Uptons at one point uh, in the in the research. And it's like I think, yeah, I think both the commercially made food has gotten better um, in that it doesn't taste like vegan food. And then I think those that are out there making restaurants and, and so on are also upping their game to realize that they need to attract other people. Oh, just a quick point of clarification. So Eric and I were in a band with Dan Stackman, and Dan is the guy who started Upton's. Just, just oh, so Dan. You know, okay. The, oh, okay. All right. But he All is right. the guy I, I was referring to about the vegan cheese. Yeah. I mean, he is just like... Right. Straight edge yeah, yeah. vegan for life for real. It's amazing. And I, with much right. respect for that. I tried to make Satan like a good, I don't know, at least 20 years ago. And I found it mm-hmm. so messy and difficult and the end result so unrewarding that I was like, this is something that it doesn't make sense to make at home and is totally worth buying. And my stance on that hadn't really changed until I flipped through your recipe book for it. And I think... I will actually try those. So the kind of unanswered question there is, what did I do wrong last time? Which off the top of my head, I cannot possibly remember. I, I, I no idea uh, because I see. I thought the same thing. I shied away from the concept for quite a while, uh, thinking, well, there's no way I can do that. I know I can't make tofu at home. I'm not going to go to that extent. I definitely know I'm not making tempeh at home because I, after doing the research, and I started reading these. I don't know if maybe over the last 15, 20 years. Somebody figured out a technique, but it's like basically when I started doing this, it's if you've got a food processor, you're already like way ahead of the game. Um, It's literally dump everything into a food processor um, or at least drop what dump what's called your sauce or your flavoring level in. So in my case, it's usually chickpeas. I like to use chickpeas as kind of to to add a a softness to the texture. but it's usually chickpeas and then some sort of spices and, you know, might be hot sauce. It might be barbecue rub. It might be soy sauce, whatever, whatever you're trying to shoot for. Mix all of that. So you've got this kind of like wet slurry and then you're adding in um, you're adding in basically uh, some seltzer or, or stock and uh, the vital wheat gluten. And then you process that until it sort of comes together into a ball in the processor. Turn it out need it for a while. And the longer you need it, the tighter it gets. So if you only need it for a couple of minutes, like I do for the or for the sausages, you get kind of that like sausage texture. If you need it for like 10, 15 minutes, you'll start to get that kind of dense deli style. Cool. Uh, That's thing. interesting. Kind of like dough, um, but I, I can... It's, yeah, exactly. You're And if you need it long enough, you'll start to get that shreddable thing, the like, you know, beef or chicken shred type stuff. You, you know, you, it takes a longer need. Um, but for me... I haven't tried like the, I, I'm assuming probably what you might have done was simmer it. Did you like boil it in a broth? Do you remember? No, I do. I think I'm remembering the difference and this does sound like an improvement or just difference in technique. I think 
my previous conception of seitan was you started with like flour and you like water put enough water through straining it to remove the starch and what's left was the gluten which was a horrible <gasps> oh. process so i think by maybe starting with vital wheat gluten you removed that step mm-hmm. and you can just put it in and then there's none of this like rinsing and straining going yeah. on which sounds worth doing versus not worth doing yeah i yeah i did not i did not know that that was actually a thing at one point so i guess that's it is that again and to go back jason to your like what's changed Mm. what's changed is if 10 15 20 years ago the idea of making satan meant that you had to make your own vital wheat gluten yeah yeah whereas now Whereas now you can buy 10 pound bags on Amazon. Well, you could buy 10 pound <laughs> bags on Amazon. You can't right now. Um, then yeah, that's a major game changer because now it's literally the equivalent of making bread, uh, but without the yeast rise and all of that. Um, and then it depends on how you go about wanting to process it. For me, I went the easiest, stupidest route, which is steamer basket. Um, so I, so all of my Satan gets wrapped in foil, uh, put into a steamer basket for f- around 45 to 50 minutes, and then it's let rest to cool. I, I let it rest overnight in the fridge because that way it kind of tightens up. And then you've got either, generally I'll do, as you, as you can see in the, in the zine, it's either kind of like a deli loaf, looks like a, a salami, or it's uh, sausages that I use for, you know, that I'll be using hopefully one day for a pop-up. Um, and then with the, you know, with the salami style, um, you know, like I say, last night I diced that up, threw it into a fry pan, and that was what became kind of the bacon crumbles on um, uh, the potato skins. Uh, when I make the panic in Detroit, I shred it on a shredder, and that becomes the ground beef for the uh, Detroit Coney sauce. Um, cut it into rounds and marinate it in a Korean barbecue and turn, and that's what I used for a ramen, uh, 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 the, the most demented Franken ramen in the world in that I used a pork-based tonkatsu broth hmm. for the soup, but I put Satan in as the meat. So it's, yeah, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, and I think that's what it is, is that, it, you know, I mean, because you can do things like boil it, uh, there's a way of simmering Satan that I've not tried yet. Um, I've made sa- the Satan meatball recipe in the book, in the zine, uses baking it in the oven. That that I've done, uh, baked them in the oven. Um, and I'm now actually on my list of things to do is supposedly you can make Satan in an instant pot. And I've not tried that yet. So I may give that a swing. Right. So during this time of coronavirus, you know, people are spending a lot more time <laughs> cooking, which, you know, you've certainly seen uh on social media and everywhere you look um you know for those who are in a fortunate enough situation to not be dealing with actually having the virus or its effects um you know people doing a lot of elaborate cooking but at the same time uh there's been a crazy run on groceries and so sometimes supplies are limited so i wonder if you can offer any tips for things you may already have in your kitchen you can use to uh spice up those meals yeah i mean actually i I guess we're you know we've been really lucky here in bushwick in that um i haven't encountered yet you know uh except for like things like yeast and so on uh pretty much everything is you know has always been readily available if not quite a bit more expensive because of the supply chain uh changes um probably i mean the big hack right now that that i'm definitely down with is uh if you can get a hold of cheap ramen noodles 
uh, cheap ramen noodles. Keep the keep the seasoning packets that grate on on uh, popcorn. Uh, <laughs> just melt some butter and then put the seasoning packet on for the popcorn. Uh, but the cheap ramen noodle is is like basically can can replace a dozen different kinds of pasta recipes. Um, you know, you can take that and you could turn it into mac and cheese literally just by, you know, putting some, I mean, if you want to do really shitty mac and cheese, you, you just, you know, basically some American cheese melted on it uh, after you've boiled it and you mix it in and you've got basically a kind of Korean style mac and cheese that, that, that actually exists out there. I mean, and that's, you know, and the funny thing is, is that's something that every college student, at least from my generation, knew is that ramen noodles are the magic freaking brick that, you know, you can turn into any kind of a meal. And somehow, you know, 30 years, 40 years later, they're suddenly rediscovering that, hey, I can make I can make French onion soup ramen by like caramelizing some onions and making some broth and putting the ramen noodles in it. Um, I mean, weirdly get into I mean, look at like I'm sure you're going to find cauliflower. If you mm. find cauliflower in a, in a, in a grocery store, um, you've got the ability to make. I mean, I have a, one of the recipes on, on the grill club is uh, Kung Pao fighting, uh, which is a all Kung Pao chicken. It's a Kung Pao chicken made with cauliflower instead of chicken. Um, but you can take that cauliflower and turn and, and rice it down and you can turn it into taco crumbles, a uh, little taco spice roasted in the oven with the cauliflower and you've got taco meat without having to have taco meat. And it tastes exactly like that Ortega taco ground beef. Um, that's probably, I guarantee you, cauliflower is still probably sitting in the produce section of any grocery store because I can't imagine. I mean, it's always one of those things that I look and I see broccoli's gone, but top, but, but cauliflower is still there. Um, so, and, and I mean, honestly, frozen, you've, you've seen this over and over again in, in, in food blogs and so on right now, but I mean, look at your frozen food section, you know, it's, uh, grab, people seem to grab canned items because they think they're doomsday preppers. Um, but they skip the frozen foods, uh, especially probably in New York city, because most refrigerators in New York city do not have a large freezer space. Mm -hmm. Um, but the vegetables in frozen, in the frozen food section actually tends to be better than the vegetables in the canned section. Um, they haven't been processed as much. They've been flash frozen. Uh, they usually are fresher. You literally let them thaw and you can just make a quick salad out of, you know, beans and, and corn, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess, I think like we were talking about via email. What's weird to me is that there are so many people, I think the people in my building are cooking for the very first time in the five years I've been in this building. <laughs> Um, you know, they always used to come by and say, wow, your apartment smells great, but then they'd get delivery. Um, and I mean, their kitchen can't be any larger than my kitchen and my kitchen isn't great. It's larger than a lot of New York kitchens. Um, but I think it's just, it's a matter of, there's so much information out there that if you go to a grocery store or you don't know what you, you know, you've got, what you've got in your pantry, you can literally plug it into Google and get a recipe just based on whatever you've got in your pantry. Somebody will tell you somewhere, you know, if you've got packets of duck sauce and a thing of cauliflower and some ramen noodles, you can make a, you know, duck sauce stir fry um, and they'll give you the steps for making a duck sauce stir fry. Um, so and I mean, I think that's what's really great about this happening now. I think about like if this had happened 20 years ago when we didn't have the Internet, 
you know, um, we didn't have this kind of information, we all probably would be starving. Um, but because we have this, we have the ability to go, here's what I want for dinner tonight and punch it in somewhere and get a recipe depending on your skill level that you can do, you know, fairly easily. It's great. I mean, I, I'll usually look up <clears throat> three, four, you know, versions and kind of read and say, oh, I've, I have enough cooking experience to know that that doesn't sound quite right or not quite to my liking, but this makes sense and kind of mix and match and then go make something. It's amazing. I mean, yeah, that's when I started cooking, I came from my suburban mom made me pork chops and <laughs> roast beef. <laughs> and like, so when I started being vegan, I was like, I don't know how to do this. So take a cookbook, write down the recipe, go to the store, buy exactly that, do exactly what it says, see what happens. So um, yeah, this is much better. It's nice. There's a, this, an old saying that you don't know, you don't truly know a recipe until you've cooked it 10,000 times. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, but I do think that you don't really start to understand cooking until you're cooking on a regular basis. And that's something I think a lot of people are finding new, especially in New York City right now, is they're, they're having to cook on a regular basis. Um, a, because obviously you know, unemployment is causing people to have a tighter budget, but B, because they're at home and they've got to fill time somehow. Um, and that's the beauty of the fact that there are so many people out there doing videos, doing sharing recipes, putting stuff out there. It sucks for my brand and for trying to sell cookbooks, but you know, at the same time, I see traffic going up on my website, uh, and that makes me happy. I wanted to ask some more music questions. I see you got a lot of like posters or flyers, and it appears to be either a silver or platinum <laughs> record behind you. I would just like to hear about what those are, how they came to you know who who's on there, and what they, what they uh, mean to you. Let's see. Yeah, I think. Uh, oh yeah. So the yeah. Uh, uh, so basically, the the uh, platinum that's behind me is for the Offspring Smash. Cool. Uh, down down the wall a bit um, is I believe a gold for uh, Concrete Blonde. Strangely enough. So basically, um, out of college, I ended up. Uh, being a, well, in college, I was a, a record buyer at, uh, or I was a zine buyer, actually, a magazine buyer at a place called School Kids Records in Ann Arbor. And from there, once I got married, uh, ended up in Detroit uh, as a wholesale buyer for CDs and, and vinyl uh, at a one-stop in Detroit. Uh, segued ultimately uh, to the East Coast, for wholesale and then ended up landing at Caroline Distribution and Astroworks Records. So along the way, back in the day when these were still put out, uh, I would end up getting gifted platinum and gold and, and whatnot albums. Uh, and yeah, I think it's, uh, so I've got the Offspring Platinum, I've got a Concrete Blonde Gold, a Chemical Brothers Gold, and then not in here, but in uh, another room, this insane Fatboy Slim um, you've come a long way, baby. Uh, platinum that is actually a turntable with a record on it, of uh, the platinum record on it in like a in like a carry case, basically. Um, but I mean, that, you know, that's the interesting thing is, is I don't think these things are made anymore. I you know I doubt I doubt anybody's making gold records for you know platinum streaming or whatever. Um, this is you know kind of a relic of a day where uh, we used to. We used to sell music, you know, and that, you know, music was kind of a commodity. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, you know, it's 
but I still, I, I, these are probably the, would be the last things I'd end up selling in my life would be these, uh, these records just because nobody makes them anymore. Yeah, interesting. And I imagine that would have been the first one that Epitaph ever made. So they would have actually had to like, yeah. figure out like, who makes these things? How do we get? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and you know, and the interesting thing is, I remember uh, I was working at, uh, back in the day, they used to, they were called one stops. And the, the reason was that you record label, major labels didn't want to sell directly to mom and pop stores in the 80s and 90s. They wanted to sell just to the big chains and just to the major stores. So a whole sub distribution uh, industry came up called the One Stop. And the One Stop would basically buy in from the labels, consolidate it. And then if you were Joe Blow's records in Chicago, you would then place an order with CD One Stop and they would send you and you got to basically buy from all the labels just by buying from the One Stop. Um, I happened to be the Caroline Records buyer uh, at the time when Smash came out. And um, Epitaph wanted a big push on it. And I, they send me the, the advanced CD and I still have a soft spot for them. Um, uh, you know, I had, I had at one point made a, uh, uh, well, actually I think it's in the vegetarian uh, thing is the pretty fly for a fungi uh, <laughs> uh, melt. Um, in the end, I think Smash is their only good album. Uh, and I think, I think Dexter turn, pivoting to hot sauce was a, was a brilliant career move. Um, but the remarkable thing was, is that this was a brand new, it's like, like pretty much a debut album, you know, for them. I mean, they had had a couple of indie releases out and Caroline was trying to push out tens of thousands of them. And we're kind of like, I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm like going, yeah, this, this is an amazing album, but tens of thousands, but we sold out of them in like two weeks, three weeks. I always found interesting the success of that record and band at that moment, which yeah. was at the precise moment that Bad Religion signed mm -hmm. to a major. So they still, you know, at least Mr. Brett and, and company, you know, owned Epitaph and they were apparently doing this big push for the offspring. Yeah. And I remember getting a promo CD in the mail and going like, oh, that's okay. Oh, this song's kind of catchy. And then being at someone's house later that evening and hearing it come on the radio and being completely floored by why mm -hmm. that song was on the radio and um but yet you didn't hear any bad religion right. songs on the radio and, and that album just kind of yeah. to my mind died a, a death well you I mean, know, and, and there were so many other bands on epitaph that were better uh rancid bad religion all of them at that time um but i think and i even think that uh, in the pretty fly for a fungi thing i mentioned um, my theory on why Offspring did better than the other Epitaph bands is because they were the right blend of frat boy party rock, mm. you know, punk, quote unquote. And, I, mm -hmm. and, and there's mm -hmm. big, big freaking quotes around punk uh, <laughs> there. Um, you know, it was it was kind of like the Ramones. I mean, the Ramones were definitely a punk band, but the Ramones were a punk band perfect for suburban America. Uh, the Beastie Boys were definitely a punk hip hop band, or were, were definitely a hip hop band, but they were the perfect hip hop band for Middle America. I mean, when you consider that the Beastie Boys licensed to Ill and Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet came out in the exact same week, and both mm. of them would do would do the same thing, which was take two local regional bands that had a following and make them. I, I was living in Ann Arbor at the time was working in a record store in Ann Arbor. Both those albums took Jersey rock and New York kind of 
punk hip hop, however you want to call it, and brought it to downtown Ann Arbor. Um, the Ramones did that with New York punk scene. Um, and to a certain extent, Offspring ended up, I think, doing that. I think in the end, any a lot of people who bought the Offspring, who bought Smash, probably went back and started looking at the other bands on Epitaph, hopefully. Because I know I was still selling Epitaph at that time. Um, it was still the buyer for Caroline for Epitaph. And we saw after Smash came out, we saw an uptick on an interest in the label, on, on sales going, um, because we were still at a point where people paid attention to labels. That's another thing that I think mm-hmm. streaming has killed is, you know, there's no, there, you know, cra- you know, crass or um, epitaph or touch and go or any of these labels that, I mean, you know, I, you know, when I was working uh, at school kids uh, in the, in the eighties, that's what you did. You bought, you bought wax tracks records, you know, you bought everything on wax tracks, you know, uh, there's this new band out called the Revolting Cox. Well, I've never heard any, heard of them before. Well, they're on Wattracks. Well, give me a fucking copy. You know, it was like it didn't matter because you bought by the label, you know, and now we've lost that. I mean, I mean, and I guess that's part and parcel of the collapse of the music business and so on. But, um, you know, now it's, I don't even know what it is. I mean, I, I guarantee you, I know songs that I don't have any idea who does them. Um, I do a lot of streaming while I'm just, you know, playlist runs from Spotify and I'm still a music fan, but I'm not the music fan I, you know, that I was in the eighties and nineties where I could like say, get into the nerdy conversation about why the who is better than the stones or the Beatles, (laughs) you know, or why skinny puppy is better than ministry or why, you know, whatever, uh, or why Barry Hensler from the Necros sucks. Um, but, um, why does he, he does he doesn't actually. Um, the, 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 that's, uh, that was that was my way of, of saying he actually helped me uh, pick out my wedding invitations. Oh, nice. You've you've been on quite a journey from owning your own place to to managing other places to helping you know consulting other yeah. businesses. What have you learned? That's a, that's a very broad question. <laughs> that's a very broad uh, question. Uh, what have you learned? And uh, if you know, I imagine people right now who are kind of rethinking what they want to do with their lives i imagine many of them are thinking about going into that line of work don't. in the future if restaurants ever reopen don't don't um no i mean i i'm i'm absolutely positive that restaurants will reopen um it's going to take a lot more than this to to stop people who are passionate about doing this uh, yeah i fell into hospitality by sheer idiocy um when you know when we were doing web design and when that kind of for the music business and when that contracted with these barbecue uh, parties we've been doing, we just sort of ended up opening a barbecue joint. Neither one of us had ever done anything in hospitality, but when you're in upstate New York, you can have that kind of idiocy and not go bankrupt in three weeks. Um, We were lucky in that our overhead was low. Our rent was $600 a month. Um, That's unheard of here. And it was for a decent Mm -hmm. sized space. But I often say everything I learned about hospitality um, or at least about running a restaurant, I learned from the internet. Um, those early days were literally about like Googling food costs. How do I calculate food costs? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm freaking out because we open and I realize, and I'm looking at my food costs are like 55%, 60%. We're going to go bankrupt. We're going to, you know, how is that possible? Until I realized that I wasn't taking into account that if I'm making five gallons of barbecue sauce and I take a bunch of ketchup out of the inventory, 
it's not gone. It's now barbecue sauce. And I have to calculate the barbecue sauce back in. And lo and behold, I suddenly am at 23% food costs. And I'm, you know, so mm -hmm. it was those kind of little things. And then, you know, when we came kind of down here, um, I kind of looked at it and went, well, now I'm not in Kansas anymore. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to be in upstate New York, and it was kind of really marginally ballsy for me to even consider returning to New York. And I got a couple of quick lessons, you know, handed to me um, about the radical difference between operating a business in a city like New York or even Chicago or, you know, any major metropolitan area versus a rural uh, food business. Uh, overheads are a lot higher. Uh, competition is a lot you know, more vicious, uh, Yelp reviewers, um, you know, uh, landlords, you know, the, the, I mean, the fact that the Department of Health, you know, our Department of Health person in the Catskills would come in and eat lunch regularly and would bring people by and would hang out. We had a, an intern who came up for the summer from, from New York City restaurant. And when the Department of Health guy came in, in in the Catskills, she froze like a deer in headlights. Meanwhile, we're just like hanging out and I'm giving him food and so on. She's like, that's your inspector? It's like, yeah. And it's like, and it's always the same inspector. Whereas here, you never know. You know, in New York, you never know. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, over the years, I started looking at when I, when I started, you know, getting in and managing restaurants, the key, the you know, key for me was always how do you cut costs? I mean, that was always usually the first thing that I would do. And it was remarkable to see that, like, restaurants don't have recipe books. You know, a lot of bars and so on don't have recipe books, don't have. I went into one bar that shall remain nameless that didn't have measuring spoons and measuring cups. Um, you know, simple little things that, you know, that help. Um, and I think the funny thing is, is the wife at one point, when all of this went into lockdown, she's like, well, you should start getting together this idea of getting back out there and consulting. And I'm like, nobody's going to hire a consultant anymore. This is done. Mm. On the other side of this, nobody's going to be bringing in people to consult about DOH inspections or to, to consult about food costs or whatever. If they're smart and they want to continue in the restaurant business, they have been spending the last six weeks here in New York City learning that shit. Um, they may want to hire somebody to be, you know, to handle that, that kind of aspect. But if any restaurateur who wants to come out on the other side of this isn't learning deep dives into food costs and into labor costs and into ways to control quality and all of this, um, then no, they're not going to survive when they reopen because they're not using this time wisely. I mean, I understand that a lot of people right now are just trying to find the funding and, and to keep their employees. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also incumbent on owners and chefs and so on to use this time to go beyond the, I want to cook great food and into the business of food. And I mean, I was never a great chef. Um, I'm a good cook. I'm a great, I'm a great cook. I'm not a great chef, but I'm a great businessman. And I'm probably the 80% of what you want a chef to be, which is inventory control, cost control, portioning, um, all of the stupid stuff that most of these kids out of the Culinary Institute don't want to know. Uh, they don't want to do that. They just want to go and be freaking Eric Repair or Anthony Bourdain or whatever the fuck and just, you know, be cool on the line with their tattoos and their, you know, whatever and make and take microgreens on top. Of, you know, and that's that's like 10 percent of this whole thing. 
You know, the other half, the, 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 the 90% is the business. I think the restaurants that don't reopen are going to instead end up being makers. Instead of, you know, maybe that instead of reopening your vegan restaurant, you become maker of vegan cheese. Maybe you're the one that finds the, the solution for vegan cheese. You've decided you're not going to reopen the restaurant. Just can't. Um, you know, rather than reopening your foraged food restaurant, your farm to table restaurant, you instead decide to start a business that helps connect farmers with consumers or that creates foraged food packages, you know, to sell in stores or whatever. Um, I think there's going to be a big rise in kitchens for hire, um, partially because I think there's going to be a big rise in empty kitchen spaces. Uh, but I think that's, I think, especially when you see people making stuff. Sorry, kitchens for hire basically just means you can rent right. space to come and make stuff. Exactly. To start your own kind of food business. Okay. And that's the, and, and in New York, that's been the biggest hurdle. I mean, the reason I made the, I did my first cookbook was because fans of my barbecue joint wanted to buy sauces and rubs for me. And I tried to kind of sell them under the radar. Unfortunately, the Department of Agriculture discovered I was doing that and sent me a, and sent me a cease and desist letter uh, because you can't do that out of your home. You have to have a commercial kitchen. And the mm -hmm. reality of the scenario is, is that if you're a small startup, you probably can't afford the, the few commercial kitchens that are out there are too expensive or too prohibitive. Um, even if they're affordable, you've then got all of the various business fees and so on that you have to hurdle before you can get to that point. There was already kind of coming into this several places that were looking to open up to provide people a place to make food, uh, to start entrepreneur type scenarios, uh, food businesses, or maybe even ghost kitchens, um, you know, where it's where you're just doing a, a delivery only scenario. You're not actually having a brick and mortar store. Um, and I think that's, you know, especially with people in their apartments right now making sourdough. Um, learning to make hot sauces, you know, watching people making, I had, fr I had friends who messaged me and wanted to know if they could get two quarts of pimento, of my pimento cheese from me, uh, next week. Um, and I'm suddenly thinking, well, underground pimento cheese railroad, I can see this, um, <laughs> you know, but I think that's, you know, I think it's going to be because one of the big problems has always been kitchen space. And if you've, for whatever reason, a store decide, or a restaurant decides not to go back into a space, you're still going to have the kitchen space there. Now, whether or not they decide they're going to sell everything off or whether the landlord seizes it or however you know, these things shake out, we don't really know yet. That's an X factor. Uh, but if you say, well, I'm, I want to figure out how to pivot, maybe one of the ways that you know, restauranters will pivot is to go, well, maybe I can create a community kitchen. You know, maybe I can create a way for people to come in and make stuff here to sell, maybe even out of the front of the space. Maybe they become maybe we see a lot more like specialty groceries uh, popping up out of this um, because I think it's, you know, the restaurant thing is going to be hard, especially given social distancing or as I like to say, physical distancing, um, mm -hmm. you know, given physical distancing, given masks, given gloves, given all of that, um, given the fact that, you know, supposedly you're going to have to remove half your tables. If you remove half your tables from a restaurant, you've got to either charge twice as much or you've got to do three to four times the service. And that changes a lot of things. Um, 
You know, I think yeah. I think people are I think food's going to be a lot less precious on the other side. I think we're going to see a lot less. I think we're going to see a lot less fancy food um, mm. post post Corona. I think we're going to see. You know, I, I think well, I pray that the tasting table goes away. Um, mm. I pray that micro gastronomy dies. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of people up for this idea of spending $600 on a, on a meal. Um, you know, I think people are going to, mm. you know, they're going to want comfort. They're going to want, you know, and the restaurants that can turn, that can turn to that, I think will succeed and will be fine. And those who can't figure that out, you know, are either going to go away or have to figure out something new to do. But considering, you know, how well you know the the woes of regulation and and uh, various layers of government and and licensing, is there anything that government can do to <laughs> uh, help restaurants post coronavirus? Oh yeah, I mean, is the standard response is yeah, get the fuck out of the way. But um, you know the. The reality is, is that like you look in New York City and one of my favorite stupid stories about the Department of Health inspections is there was a bar in the Lower East or there was a bar in the East Village uh, that I used to hang out in. And the bar when I was first meeting the bartender there, uh, the manager there, uh, she told me the story that they got their first restaurant inspection. They got dinged. They got a, a violation for not having a stem thermometer, um, which is generally a quick read thermometer, which is generally required to temp foodstuffs, to, to, to temp, consume, temp consumables to make sure that they're out of the danger zone. Um, if it's a cold item, it has to be below 40 degrees. If it's a hot item, it has to be above 140. So you're supposed to have these little stem thermometers. So any Anytime you see a chef show, you see them hanging in their pockets, et cetera. Um, and she got a violation for not having a stem thermometer. And I looked around and I said, you don't have a kitchen. And she said, yep. I said, do you want to know why the violation <laughs> was? And I'm looking around and I'm trying to go, why would you? And she goes, because we needed to temp our ice bin. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, excuse me, what? And she goes, yeah, see, according to the inspector, the ice bin that we use to fill glasses with ice is considered a consumable and as such has to be below 40 degrees. <laughs> and she says, oh yeah. I, I said to him, I said, you do realize that ice that is above 40 degrees is called water. <laughs> Those are the kind of things. I mean, that's not a food safety issue. That's a making money for the city issue. Is there an actual health danger or is this a nitpicky thing, you know, eggs, eggs, overcooked meat. Hell yeah. Bust them. Raw meat dripping onto cooked meat. Oh, hell yeah. Bust them. Stuff not held at temperature. By all means, bust them. Um, dude's not wearing gloves in a sushi restaurant. I don't give a shit as long as his hands are clean, you know, plus, I, I mean, I think we're, we're going to see a whole new realm of when we get back to it. <sighs> You know, they're going to they're going to lay in a whole new thing about tabling and masks and mm -hmm. gloves. And, you know, um, I mean, uh, personally, you know, I mean, I, ha I haven't even seen any of my restaurant friends, you know, confronting the idea of 
liability insurance. I mean, you know, you've got liability insurance if somebody gets drunk and, and falls in front of your place. You get liability insurance if you give somebody food poisoning, but there's no liability insurance to cover if somebody is diagnosed with COVID after being in your place. Um, and that's going to, that, that's, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Uh, we'll see it. I guarantee, I guarantee if they reopen restaurants in, in Georgia and Florida next week, like they're threatening by the end of next week, you'll see some lawyer in Florida or Georgia who will be suing um, for a case of coronavirus or whatever uh, being picked mm. up in the restaurant. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, and I, you know, from the maker side of things, as far as regulations go, they need to make it easier. I mean, I was making, ad market was busting me because I was making spice rubs. I was making barbecue rubs in my house. I wasn't processing acid uh, I wasn't making barbecue sauce, you know, uh, uh, well, acid-based food products. I wasn't doing barbecue sauces. I wasn't canning and bottling anything. Um, I wasn't packaging meat. Um, I was literally taking a bunch of spices, mixing them together in a bowl, and putting them in plastic baggies. That was it. Mm -hmm. There is not a single freaking way that that is any sort of health hazard whatsoever. Zero. That should be allowable. As much as I hate to say this, making me sound very Republican, we've got to deregulate. <laughs> but um, but there's a certain level of deregulation that doesn't necessarily, that's not going to necessarily affect public health, but opens up the ability for people to make money, to take these things they're doing right now. If you're making sourdough and you have become the freaking king or queen of sourdough, and you think you want to start selling sourdough in your neighborhood, you should be able to sell sourdough. I know I am the king of pimento cheese, as, as, <laughs> as my friends have told me. But yeah, at this point, if friends want to call me you know, about pimento cheese, Venmo me and I'll make you some pimento cheese. Um, but I can't make a living off of that. But I should be able to make a living if, say, again, when we're looking at, as things start to ramp up, maybe instead of the local restaurant, the local diner trying to try to hit that 100% right off the ground, maybe that local diner says, we're going to be open during these hours. And in the off hours, if you'd like to come in and use our kitchen for 20 bucks an hour or 30 bucks an hour, you know, that those kitchens can use their off times to help offset the loss that they're, that, you know, they're going to see because of the physical distancing in the post COVID mm -hmm. uh, world. But again, the problem is, is that if I if it's going to cost me five hundred dollars to get my licensing from the city, state, or whatever, that's a no go. They're going to have to look at balancing taxation and fees versus trying to get people to do back into doing things, um, because we're not going to reclaim all of the restaurant jobs, and we're not going to reclaim all of the grocery jobs and everything else. It's all, you know, I mean, grocery has been okay, but we even then, you know, seen people bailing out. Um, you know, a lot of people left this city. Um, and the, the ones that are left are, are willing to dig in and pivot and find new things, but we've got to be given the opportunity to do that. Yeah, it's going to be <clears throat> a, a very interesting time for lack <laughs> of a better word. But uh, I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm, weirdly optimistic about it oh. or at least i mean i'm i think you know a little shake up can <laughs> be good <laughs> this mm -hmm. is a major shake up but uh it, 
you know, it's, it's yeah. nice to uh, see so many people asking themselves what it is they care about and mm -hmm. want to do with their lives. It's a good, I mean, I think it was a good reset, especially if I think the city got a little stale. Um, you know, I live in Brooklyn, so, you know, there was that kind of maker stereotype, et cetera, that, you know, luckily seemed to have died out in the last couple of years and hopefully doesn't, you know, rear its ugly head. <clears throat> but um, I think it's, it, you know, it's interesting to see, like I say, I see band, you know, I see band members uh, that I'm friends with or that, you know, I've been fans of, you know, doing Instagram live streams of making, you know, fried eggs or like uh, cooking in their backyard or, um, and I think, you know, hopefully on the other side of this, yeah, that it becomes, we, we do a kind of a reset, uh, restaurants, we look at what they're doing and go, how can we serve people better? Uh, how can we be stronger? And honestly, I kind of hope that there's a whole lot of makers. There's a whole lot of people, you know, whether it's, you know, competition for me of people trying to figure out how to put out their own cookbooks and, and start more food blogs, um, or whether it's just people, you know, like yourself who suddenly get into sourdough and realize, dude, I want to make sourdough. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what I want. I don't want to go back to, uh, you know, working till 4 a.m. slinging beer. I want to actually like, you know, have a little food company or whatever. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's, it's, I am optimistic. I mean, you know, I don't think I was optimistic the first week of the lockdown. Um, but the more the more I've seen what's going on online, um, the more that I've seen people who have probably never cooked before in their life cooking, uh, the more that I've seen people stop using Seamless and Grubhub and call their their, their restaurants, their favorite restaurants direct in order. Um, you know, the more that I see my friends, restaurants and bars, GoFundMe campaigns funded in like 36 hours. Um, yeah, I think, I think we'll be fine. Um, I think it'll be different and I think that different will be cool. Um, you know, and I think it's going to, you know, <laughs> to tie kind of back into the podcast theme, I think it's all going to be punk rock. I, I really do. I think we're going to go back. We got a little bit too major label in food. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's tying into all the musical things and stuff. We got a little bit too major label. Um, food got to be too much about big arena rock. And not enough about house parties in the basements of a VFW hall with six bands thrashing it out, all sharing equipment. Five bucks. And you know, and five bucks, <laughs> exactly. You know, um, you know, and uh, you know, and it's like, and I think that's my hope. I mean, that's kind of my hope is is that on the other side of this, I mean, I've been making plans to try to figure out how to organize basically a maker swap. You know, that it would be a swap meet for people who made stuff. You wouldn't be selling stuff. It would be at a local bar. So the bar is going to get, uh, you know, the beer, et cetera, sales, the, the alcohol sales. But, you know, you bring in 20 items. You make, I, I'd done one of these a couple of years ago, or, or I participated in one, where I brought 20 jars of pickled peppers and basically came home with 20 different, you know, there were 20 people who participated. And I came home with 20 different things from like, home bottled hard cider to uh, lemon curd to so on. And you just basically, it was kind of a swap meet, um, mm -hmm. you know? And I think those are the kind of things that, you know, it, it can't be like, well, I want to charge you $300 for your table this weekend. 
you know, you can mm-hmm. come and sell your ship, but it'll be $300 for the table. Um, you know, I tried to go to zine fests and that was my problem. I, you know, that, that means I'm not going to make any money. Um, but if we can get together in the old punk rock, put six bands together, charge five bucks to cover the space, or even better, find the space that's got the space that says, hey, we've got a bar up front. We'd like to bring people in. If you help bring people in, mm-hmm. then cool. We're not going to charge you for the space. Um, and then, yeah, just throw together a food thing or whatever that, you know, it's not about selling the food. So you get away, you get away from all of the regulations. Um, but it's about that community and learning from each other, just like everything that happened back in that 70s, 80s punk rock thing. Um, yeah. You know, and see what comes up out of that. Yeah, I love it. I, I gotta, I have to come up with something to make so I can swap. <laughs> right um, now I've got... Carrot, carrot cake and tamales. Those are my two things. Tamales. I'll, 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 swap, I'll swap you tamales. Uh, I'll swap you pimento cheese or this afternoon I'm making homemade root beer, root beer syrups. So I'll uh, swap you root beer syrup or uh, pimento cheese for tamales. Yeah. Well, I think this is a good place for us to end. Let's pretend oh. this is the punk rock QVC and uh, hawk your wares. What, what, what have you got and where can people find them? Whatever. What I'm, uh, well, what I have is a series of uh, recipe zines based around music. Um, not all of it punk rock, but some of it. Uh, you can find it at bushwickgrowclub.com. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, if you're a music collector, uh, look up Zizzy BK on Discogs. Uh, that's uh, my where I've been s- slowly selling off a 30-year, 40-year collection of music uh, because I realize I just don't listen to it physically anymore. I listen to everything via streaming uh so bushwickgrowclub.com or zizzybk on discogs well frank thank you so much for joining us and uh it was thank you yeah yeah very interesting very inspiring i'm gonna dig into some of your recipes and uh make food cool great to meet you great to talk see you thank you nice to see you thank you